From Potomac Fund Management, this is the Conquer Risk Podcast. Join us as we discuss the business of running an RIA firm and the practice of investment management. And now, our hosts. Well, today we're going to touch on a topic, are mutual funds dying a slow death? Uh, that may be interesting for some, but for us, we thought it was something that we could really, a topic we could really bring some value to because of our experience in the mutual fund space. Um, as a third-party manager, right, for 30 years, basically, we've used mutual funds only. In the last year or two, we've added ETFs to the mix. So that's the basis for, for the starting this topic. Um, Manish, I want to I want to kind of set the stage as well when it comes to mutual funds themselves. I think it's always good. I, I do this a lot. I go back and flash back a little bit of history. So let's take a moment and do that. Um, mutual funds started back in the 20s, uh, believe it or not, with MFS and State Street. Really, they, they are the first ones to come out with this, what, what we'll call a packaged product, right? Um, instead of have an investor having to buy all the individual stocks, they could just buy a mutual fund. However, that really didn't take off a whole lot, primarily because you got the Great Depression. But, you know, you think about all the things that happened until we get up to about the 70s. That's a pretty quick jump, right? But, but Jack Bogle, I think, figured out that an index fund concept was a, was a pretty good one. He's made a couple of bucks along the way uh, in that mix, right? So uh, then we, again, fast forward just a little bit, the 80s and 90s. That's really when the mutual fund concept took off full steam ahead. I think there's several reasons for that, which uh, which we can get into. But but effectively, you've got uh, the mutual fund industry take out, you know, Fidelity Magellan, a company that I used to work for, American Century, their ultra fund. You have these massive returns, the popularity. Uh, it starts to become more mainstream. And, and effectively, you know, ultimately, uh, the, the mutual funds have been the basis for 403Bs and 401Ks. Um, so there's a lot of pros here. Manish, you want to you touch on a couple of these? Yeah, I mean, they, they were launched initially because of the convenience of it, right? If an individual mm-hmm. investor wants to go out there and buy a diversified portfolio, whatever your definition of diversified is, if you want 50, 100, 200 stocks, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, at the time, it's expensive to do that. Uh, there's a lot of tax ramifications. So having a pooled investment vehicle like a mutual fund, there's others like collective investment trusts, et cetera. But having a pooled investment vehicle like a mutual fund was convenient. Uh, it was diversified, and it allowed everyday investors who maybe didn't have uh, a lot of money to access uh, a, a ton of stocks at, at a very cheap and convenient price. And, and I say cheap because when it started, it was cheap. And and that was the convenience of it, you know, at the time. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, I think this is this has become a con now because a lot of people look at mutual funds and say, well, they're expensive, right, relative to the the biggest competitor ETFs. But uh, it is it is somewhat relative, right? Because and we're going to talk about ETFs in a moment. But uh, there are mutual funds. There are a lot of different iterations. Uh, can you touch on some of the different kinds of mutual funds that are out there? In terms of what. Well, like they're not just equity or fixed income. Oh, I got We've you. got a broader yeah, selection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, you know, it, anything that can be pooled has been pooled, whether it's large cap or REITs or small caps. I mean, they've hit different asset classes, and it, it, it was a, a great invention that helped millions of investors be able to access equity markets that was never available before. Does it need some right. shaking up? Probably. You know, the, the accounting, the back end of it has, has really not changed in terms of the fund accounting for funds. And it's, it's become expensive. And that's one of the cons, right? It's, it's, the, the, right. It, the, it's the cost to run the fund. Now, I mean, it, people you know, dig on mutual funds for how much they cost. But there's a lot of inherent cost 
just to run the fund, let alone to, to manage and pick the stocks, just the actual fund accounting. Um, and then, you know, like we talk about every year when we are uh, using mutual funds is the, the phantom tax gains, if, you know, and with uh, involved in that. Bingo. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on that at all. Yeah, I mean, that's that that is, I think, one of the biggest frustrations. There are times in a market cycle that you see a fund has done poorly and, and yet a client gets hammered with this extra fund distribution because they sold something for a gain inside of the fund that di- had a negative return. That's always an awkward conversation and can be certainly can be frustrating. But, I mean, in the scheme of things, again, they, a lot more people have used mutual funds. They did their job. Now there's kind of a new kid on the block, so to speak. And, and I want to I touch on the big competitor ETFs, if that's okay. Well, hang on. Well, yeah, yeah. one second. With the, with the taxable gains, I think... This year is going to be a shock to a lot of people because mutual funds have had to deal with flows, which you're going to talk about later, uh, which have caused them to sell a lot of positions to keep up with flows. So even though you know you may not have bought and sold your mutual fund and you're just owning it, uh, you know you, you could, in all likelihood, if if it's a fund that's had a lot of outflows, you're, you're going to get hit with a pretty big gain at the end of this year. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But you know, it, like anything, it. Uh... It, it's sort of that that hidden hidden wonder whether it's going to be there or not. How how big or bad it is. I think you might be right. Uh, let's talk about the ETFs for just a moment, uh, briefly for for as the competitor to mutual funds. You know, ultimately the ETFs were opened in the '90s. Um, ironically, in Canada, I didn't even realize that till I started looking into it. You've got tips, so effectively, it was just their their version of I think about almost like a Dow Jones sort of thing, right? They created this new product for for ease of access. To, to 35 different uh, entities. So in the scheme of things, uh, do you want to touch on some of the pros of, of ETFs and, and why we have started looking at those and started using those over the last couple of years? Yeah, when, when they were first launched, it was giving you, you know, daily trading, like a stock, so you can get out of it intraday. And that can be a pro or a con, mm. uh, depending on who's uh, doing the trading. Uh, but you know the, the ease of use, the ability to track an index, uh, the taxable gain situation is, is almost eliminated, uh, and that has been a, a huge negative to mutual funds that ETFs have solved. Right. And just the overall sort of um, it, in recent years, you know, the, the liquidity aspect of it has has gotten better. Uh, and one of the reasons we shied away from ETFs to start were, were really the cons, right? The 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 fact that the bid ask spread, you know, is it can be large, and I know you have some data on that. If you want to jump in, well, I mean, just one of the things that that I recall, you know, look, you've been in this, I've been in this business twenty five years, and I remember looking at some of the ETFs back in the early two thousands that more and more were coming out, and water rights was one of them that started to get that big sort of it was big news that like this is another iteration of ETF, right? They were sort of jumping past what I would call just normal index investing. To the point of not really actively trading yet, but at least a different iteration. And you look at the size of these things, and they were so thinly traded that that, that that's a danger. I mean, you know, you need to get out, you need to make a change, and all of a sudden, well, that's great, but nobody's willing to buy unless it's, you know, a, a huge spread from what what you're wanting to sell it at. So, I mean, that's just so if we're just, just going, one yeah, if we're going down the list, so we have you know the the liquidity aspect, like you mentioned, right? right. The fact that things that can be thinly traded bid ask spread which never was listed before but you know we use y charts shout out to them you can actually go in there and see the discount to the nav 
and you can track historically, you know, what the bid ask spread difference has been, which which is a hidden cost. Now, on something that's really liquid, it's not a big deal, but not everyone's buying extremely liquid funds, and that could be, you know, a, a hidden cost in there. Um, and then historically, up until you know last week, it's been trading commissions because these things, when they were launched, you know, were treated just like any other stock, and uh, you would have to pay trading commissions in and out, which have essentially all been eliminated. And those were the, the major, yeah, the major sort of hiccups for for anyone uh, using ETFs over the years. And lastly, I think, which is most important, and people may disagree with us on this, is the, the lack of anything but a passive investment. Now, we talked about earlier, you know, mutual funds, you can, there, there are tons of them out there hitting very different asset classes, things that are uncorrelated, things that, that you can use to manage risk. With ETFs, you know, it's majority of them are, well, I guess all of them are all passive. I know there's some new ones coming out that I haven't really kept up with, but but they're but they're essentially all passive. Yeah, this is a good spot for me to, to insert, I think, um, separate from, from necessarily just the flows. But, you know, there are only $69 billion worth of actively managed ETFs in a basically a $4 trillion ETF market. Uh, so that's a very, very small smidgen and an active is i mean it, it depends on how you want to define it right but ultimately it's anything but an index and there's just not a lot out there where you're you're effectively counting on the manager to do something special right their their research their insight their uh karma their you know whatever to do something besides just give me the index and call it a day so and that's that's i i think in this market environment People don't care about that, but there are market cycles where, where you want asset classes that aren't correlated. You want asset classes that mm-hmm. might offer some additional risk management, whether that's long, short, or, or merger arbitrage, or these unique you know, management strategies that could offer that. You know, and, and so I think a lot of people are probably blinded by that right now. Who cares, right? Just buy spiders and, and, and go out there. But that is a, that is a negative, and that might change because I know the SEC came out and Changed the made it easier for people to launch ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still expensive to launch, but they made it easier. So, so maybe that changes down the road. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because this is uh, again a lot of these facts. I guess I'll just I'll mention. So, ETF.com as well as the ICI, the Investment Company Institute Fact Book, are two things that uh, are a major resource for me in a lot of these podcasts. I had met, done uh, one of our early podcasts. I referenced the number of new mutual funds created in the last several years. I think four or five years. It's actually been declining. There are fewer and fewer being created. Uh, that has continued, by the way. I looked that up again uh, now that the 2019 book is out. It continues to, to decline, and I think that's telling somewhat of the future trend of ETFs versus mutual funds. More ETFs are being created, less mutual funds are being created. Uh, but this is where, unless you have other cons, this is where I'll, I'll talk about the size of the markets, yep. I think, be good. Okay. Yep, go ahead. All right, so... So let's keep this in perspective, right? Mutual funds, you're talking about a hundred, basically, uh, seven, excuse me, 17, almost $18 trillion market, right? Think of the $18 trillion market in mutual funds. ETFs in July just crossed $4 trillion. So in the scheme of things, mutual funds had almost a decade <laughs> to grow to that size. Or, I mean, excuse me, almost a century to grow to that size. But uh, ETFs, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, 20, 20, 30 years have grown to be 25% of that size. That's that's a pretty good clip. And the flows themselves start to show that. I mean, mutual funds, again, have lost uh, 
geez, $191 billion just in 2018 and, and continue this year, I think, to, uh, you know, to, to continue to drop off. And part of that is just the market. You know, we've seen, you may have some thoughts, right? But a lot of this is, is market driven. All we hear about anymore are fees and, and, you know, just buy the index. And so that seems to be what's happening. Good marketing on BlackRock's part, I guess. <laughs> well, if you look at it from a surface level, right? Let's say you have a thousand mutual funds that do nothing but track an index, but charge a hundred basis points to do that. ETFs have come in and rightfully so disrupted that because mm -hmm. frankly, if you're doing nothing but being a closet indexer, it can be done at a very lower price than what these funds are charging. And so Agreed. I think rightfully so they have disrupted what they're supposed to disrupt. Mutual funds still dominate retirement space, like you mentioned earlier, 401ks, 403bs. Will that change? Maybe. I mean, they have to switch up their whole fund administration to, to add in ETFs. And, and some smaller folks are doing it, but I'm not sure on a, on a larger scale they're going to do that and, and how much liability they want people going in there gunslinging ETFs on a daily basis. Uh, but ETFs have done their job in disrupting what should have been disrupted, which is expensive uh, index huggers, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about this in an earlier podcast about benchmarks where there's so many funds out there that are so terrified to do anything different than the benchmark because that's what they're getting judged on that they become just closet indexers, a more expensive version of something that can be done cheaply. Yeah, well, you know, it, it lends itself. You mentioned gunslinging, and, and, and I think it's it would be good. What do you think the effects, let's talk about this, what do you think the effects will be or, or are starting to be now that with ETFs with no trade costs? In terms of what? Well, I mean, you know, again, zero trade cost effect. I mean, if there's no, if you can go in and trade and there's no prohibitive spot, I mean, it's not like, and maybe maybe a, a 5 or $10 or $20 trade wasn't going to stop you anyway. Um, but for those folks that want to go in and trade, and now there's there's sort of they're not sure whether to go to cash or make a change to their portfolio because of these trade costs. Well, now there aren't any. Yeah, I don't I don't think the trade costs are going to have that much of an effect when it comes to those people because they 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 would have traded anyway. And frankly, in terms of the death of the possible death of mutual funds, these guys weren't weren't using mutual funds anyway. So I don't. The trade costs, I think, are a little bit overblown. I think it'll have a, a small effect on on managers and investors who want to access asset classes um, that maybe were, they were slightly, you know, restricted before. But I, I don't think it's going to be some huge deal where where all of a sudden you're, you know. But gotcha. hey, I want to see the data. Like I want to see TD and Fidelity release the data that shows has trading increased, has the volatility in terms of the amount of trades being placed increased over the past couple months. It's still too new to know for sure. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see the same thing. What, what, what kind of a uh, difference does it make in their trade volume, trade frequency? Are there more trades to sell, less to buy? What, you know, what, what's going on? And part of that will be market driven. But again, you've just basically removed a roadblock. So, um, Let's let's wrap this up a bit. What's ultimately what's your conclusion, right? What's your crystal ball say for for the death, slow death of mutual funds? Is it is it a reality, I, yeah. or, or are we going I, with this? I, yeah, I think so. I don't think mutual funds are dying um, in in the classical sense, and what I mean by that is mutual funds will always be here, but the closet indexers, the multiple share classes, the ones that should die, are are are, are definitely going to to go down a slow, painful death. It's going to be like Chinese waterboarding for most of these guys. Um, 
but you know, I, I think the future of, of wealth management, and I mentioned this before, and and and, I've, and we talked about this many times, is is going to be a barbell approach. Where on one side, you have low cost, cheap, passive investments, and the other side, you're going to have mutual funds that that add value, that take a stand. You know what I call the strange portfolios, things that either manage risk, uh, provide non correlated uh, access to to asset classes. Uh, and take a stand to generate alpha, something different than their benchmark, and and those are going to survive. And it, it's it's you know for Potomac it's it's perfect, right? For thirty years we've we've touted the fact that our our job is to go find those stock pickers, go find those actual mutual funds that that do better. You know the stats are that eighty five percent of them don't, but that's our job to find the fifteen percent that do. And when we couldn't find that fifteen percent that that did better, we would use a passive index fund. And nothing changes in that regard. It's always been our mantra where on one side, you're, you know, if you can't find something that beats the benchmark, just buy the benchmark. Uh, if you can or something that provides additional benefits, then I think those are still going to be in a mutual fund setup. Yeah. Now, all right. Well, I appreciate that, that insight. Uh, I think it's time for us to move on to uh, recommendations. And I'll start this one off. Um, of course, beyond recommending my rock chalk Jayhawks, uh, that that's a whole other story. Uh, no I one think cares. I know, but <laughs> uh, but look, I think it's very valuable for advisors to read one of our resources that we've used several times in different podcasts, and that is the ICI Factbook. Uh, it comes out every year. There's a lot of great information. Yes, it is driven by the investment companies that are members. There are thousands of them, right? All the providers get together, and then they have this this entity that goes out and does research. And it's research about our industry. It's research about the mutual funds, ETFs, closed and open-end, UITs, right? These packaged products, how they're used, U.S. households, what they're doing, um, there's a lot of great information, and I find it very valuable every year. I, I take time to at least work my work part way through it. Uh, but it's it's a it's a long it's a long uh, uh, PDF, if you will. It's free, and it's free. But yeah, it's free. It's free. You just go out to icifactbook.org, uh, and then of course etf.com has some some stuff too. But the factbook is definitely my recommendation to read, at least so you know what's in it. And we'll put links to that in the show yep, notes. Absolutely, so everyone has access to it. Yeah, my recommendation this week is a, a movie called um, Game Changers on Netflix. And so I come from a long lineage of folks who struggle with metabolic syndrome, which for those who don't know is cholesterol and blood pressure and all that fun stuff. And so I've been playing around with, with veganism and, and you know getting in and out. And I try it for a couple of weeks and then figure there's nothing to goddamn eat. And then I switch back and... <laughs> And 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 so Look, I've been. I, I got, hold on, I got to I got to call this right now. I cannot ever be a vegan. I will die first. I'm just making my claim right now. You know it. I I yeah, have to I, eat know, the but meat, listen, man. It's, I, it's, I just, you know the research is out there, right? I beef, mean, if it's you started, if you started like the cigarette industry that you know was touting years ago that it was uh, you know it didn't cause cancer, it wasn't bad for you. You know the research is starting to come out um, with the meat and, and dairy industry being. Uh, a, a marketing, you know, gimmick in terms of what's good or bad for you. Listen, I'm not going to get many fans going down this path <laughs> unless they're all in California. I get that, um, but the point is, you know, it's uh, uh, we have been. I've been playing with it. You know, my wife doesn't eat any meat, and so it's it, it fits our household. And so far, it's early, but this movie sort of touches upon that where they really go into athletes 
who, who are uh, vegans, like Arnold Schwarzenegger for years, you know, was slamming 250 grams of protein, all about bodybuilding, and he's completely changed that. So I don't know. You know, you, I, I'll be 40 in January. I'm sure I'll have a, many more of these midlife crisis, uh, you know, testing tools out there. So that's, that's what I got for this week. I'll report right. back and see if I last any longer. It's been a week and a half or two weeks. I, I've been back and forth. So yeah, knows? well, good, good luck. I'll wish you luck. And, uh, I won't have any empathy because I will never know how that feels to eat nothing but plants. <laughs> All right. So, so I do want to make sure that I relay something that's new. This is, uh, as of this last week, we released uh, another page on our website, uh, the podcast page, and ultimately we have put all of our podcasts on one spot. Of course, our blog notifications have the audio version as well as a link to the video version, but if you want to just see the podcast, excuse me, the podcast by themselves, I think it's a great place to be able to go, and you know, if you can't sleep, just start with one and go to two, and then after that, go to three, and eventually... You'll, you'll, you know, it's better than counting sheep. So, <laughs> well, I before we we end here, I I made count of the number of times you said so ultimately. ultimately and yeah, it's uh, five. Probably five or six. Yeah. Well, at least I got it down from eight last week. So you know, yeah. I, I'm trying. All right. On that note, uh, like, share, subscribe. Uh, take a look at our podcast page. Go read the ICA fact book. And uh, well, if you really don't like meat, then follow Manish. On that note, thanks a lot. See you. Appreciate it. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Potomac Fund Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Potomac Fund Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.